We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. When my wife Jess and I go on vacation, once uh, we know where we are going to go, usually the very next thing that we do is plan for food. Where are we going to eat? We don't feel like we have experienced a new place until we have experienced their food. We do everything in our power not to eat at different chain restaurants, but we love to find those small places that are unique to the cities and towns that they are in. The spices they use, the way they prepare their food, the cooking styles, all are a reflection of their creators and the cultures in which they grew up in. Food holds a prominent place also in the worship of God's people. The Passover was celebrated around food, meat from sacrifices was eaten, and of course the Lord's table, which we will eat at together later in the service, are all celebrated around food. Inviting us, his people, to associate taste with the goodness, love, and salvation of God. Two weeks ago, Pastor Damien talked about us inviting God to know us, to scrutinize our hearts, and to remove anything that is not of Him. In our psalm today, God invites us to know Him, but not in a scholarly fashion or having a perfect apologetic or systematic theology, as all those are good things, but God invites us to experience Him as we would experience food. In verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is not just the object of our study in an ancient text, but God is eternal personhood, revealed to us in his Trinitarian nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through the Son, Jesus Christ, God invites us into that loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mystery of us in Christ and Christ in us. God invites us to know and to experience him as loving father, as brother in Jesus, and helper through his spirit. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and theologian, lived in the early to mid-1800s. He lived in an affluent community in Denmark and was worried about the nominal Christianity of his Lutheran community. To him, Christians were taking advantage of God's grace and not living out the gospel. In one of his books called Self-Examination, he says that when we read Scripture first, if we are to hear what God wants to teach us about ourselves, we must listen for that message. We must not distance ourselves from the Scriptures, treating them as solely an objective treaty to be studied in a scholarly manner. He says that God's Word is fundamentally practical. God's Word is to be experienced, it is to be lived out in our day-to-day life, and one thing that can drive us toward or away from God's Word and experiencing His goodness is fear. In Psalm 34, we see two different types of fear. 
One that leads us to experience the goodness of God in verses 7, 9, and 11. And one that leads away from God. One that we need to be delivered from. And the second part of verse 4. And this psalm invites us to examine ourselves and ask the question, what fear directs my life? And the first fear that we are going to look at is a fear of the world, or a fear of not measuring up to the world. Now, I want to qualify this as we talk about fear to say that not all fear is bad, and I'm not speaking to a fear that would be related to a mental health issue. There is a healthy fear when it comes to our circumstances, a fear that keeps us from danger, a fear that helps us keep our children alive, um, a fear of failing that causes us to actually to succeed and to do our best. But what I'm speaking to is a fear of the world that creates idols in our lives. When fear directs our behavior and causes us to live contrary to God's good word to us. Now, this is one of the few psalms that provide a title that gives us a little context of the psalm, very similar to uh, Psalm 57 that we heard last week. And it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, you can read that account in 1 Samuel 21, but in summary, David is fleeing from Saul. He has been anointed king, but not yet coronated. And Saul is trying to kill David. So David flees to Gath, where he tries to blend in, to seek shelter, but is instantly recognized as the great warrior of Israel's armies. And so David is brought in to the ruler of Gath. David, fearing for his life, acts like a madman, and Abimelech, convinced of this, lets him go. Now, this psalm is a response to God's deliverance. But not that just that God delivered David from his physical circumstances, which he did, but from other worldly fears. If you notice the second part of verse 4, it says that God delivered me from all my fears, from multiple fears. Now, of course, in this situation, David probably would have been fearful for his physical life and health, but he also most likely feared failure. He feared not measuring up to others in this life. You may remember he was the runt of his litter of brothers, not even brought out to be considered to be king. And you can imagine going from a shepherd to God's anointed king of a nation. He may have had some insecurities and fears that he dealt with. Could he accomplish all that God had anointed him to do? And sure, we see great acts of faith and courage in the life of David, but not without moments of uncertainty, not without moments of fear. Later in David's life, when he is king, I think we can make the case that he feared not measuring up to the world standard of a king. We see this in his sin with Bathsheba and sending her husband to his certain death. You say that he feared that he, if he didn't have the most beautiful girl in the kingdom, then he wouldn't measure up to the world standard of a king. And after his sin... He was afraid he would be caught. He was afraid of the shame that would come, and so he sends her husband to his certain death. Now, one of the reasons that I love 
and believe wholeheartedly in the scriptures is because other than Jesus, no one is perfect. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, and Paul all sinned, and their shortcomings are recorded for the rest of earthly existence. They didn't do this Christian life or God-fearing life perfectly. They feared failure. They feared death. And even Jesus himself was subject to the brokenness of our world. He wept, he was grieved, he was betrayed, he was tempted, he was hungry, he was called names, he was mocked, he bled and he died, yet he was without sin. The Bible reflects our lived reality, that life is hard. Life is challenging. And it is easy to let the fear which is right in front of us overcome a fear of the one who we cannot always see. Fear is a powerful motivator in our life, and oftentimes our decisions reveal to us what we fear most. And in a social media-saturated culture, we are constantly comparing ourselves to what others are doing. It's easy, it easily turns into a game of comparison that we will never win. We are constantly evaluating ourselves on what others are doing and saying, and not about what God says about us and who God says that we are. The voice of the world grows louder and louder in our lives, and it's easy for the voice of God to grow smaller and smaller. It's no wonder that we are seeing record numbers of anxiety, depression, and loneliness in our world. We are constantly living in fear of not measuring up to others, a fear of failure, a fear that leads us to chase after worldly success. And if we want to know what we fear, we simply need to look at how we live the decisions that we make. When we are kids, we fear not being liked or cool, so we are quick to do things we know are wrong, like join in on picking on others if it puts us in our popular friend circles, or change our behavior in order to fit in. As teenagers, college students, young adults, we fear not getting into our top choice in college or grad school. We fear not getting our dream job, so life becomes about academic success even if it means we have to take drugs to help us stay awake and more focused to accomplish it. We fear not making the sports team or being the best at our sport, and so sports consume our life. Or we fear being alone. We fear not being desirable, and so it's easy to jump from relationship to relationship to look for fulfillment. As parents, we fear our children not having every opportunity in this world to succeed. And so we place a tremendous high priority on education and tutors and summer work and sports and clubs. And it's easy for these things to end up controlling the narratives of our homes. We fear not being successful so we can allow for our, so, so we can allow for our jobs or the pursuit of success or greater wealth to dominate our thoughts and time. All of these are fears, are fears of failure, are fears of not measuring up in the eyes of the world. And we, like David, need deliverance from these fears. So how do we overcome this kind of fear, which is so prevalent and always around us? We overcome fear with fear. We overcome the fear of the Lord and a fear of, or a fear of the world and a fear of failure with the fear of the Lord. 
Look at verse 9. It says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. What does it mean for us to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord is to have a healthy reverence and awe for him, not to be terrified, but to revere. I've had some unique opportunities in my life serving as a military chaplain in the reserves. One of those opportunities was meeting the Secretary of the Air Force at an event I was doing a prayer at. And if you've ever met the president or a high-ranking official of that type, you can feel the weight of the power of the office that they carry. It goes with them. The, the decisions that they have to make, the information that they know, you can feel the weight of their office. And when I was in his presence, I felt a sense of awe at what this man's day-to-day must have been like. I wasn't afraid of him. I wasn't afraid that he was going to kick me in the shin or kick me out of the Air Force. But I revered the power that he carried. And to fear the Lord is to be mindful of the absolute power that he carries. He is the one who created the universe out of nothing. As Christians, we don't need to be afraid of him because he is good. As we read in verses 8, 10, 12, and 14. We don't need to be afraid or worried how God sees us, for God is love. And we become adopted into his family when we put our faith in the work of Christ. He is our loving father, brother, and helper. So how do we grow our fear of the Lord and shrink our fear of the world in failure? If we look back to the first part of verse 4, David says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. If we want to grow in our fear of the Lord, then we need to pursue the Lord. Pursue the Lord over work, over school, over our kids' worldly success, over sports, over popularity. He needs to be the one we seek. If we pursue and prioritize the material world, then our love for the material things will grow. However, if we feed our soul, then our love for Christ and our fear of the Lord will grow. And when we seek after the Lord, we see a change happens in our lives. In verse 5, to those who look at him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And when we find God, we are changed. Or as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creation. But letting go of what we were before Christ doesn't always come easy. It was a struggle for David, and it is a battle for us today. So why do we as Christians let a fear of the world so many times drive our thoughts and our behavior? I would suggest that usually it's because we are always looking for an immediate response. The satisfaction of what we can have now versus the satisfaction of what should come later. We are terrible at waiting for anything. We are terrible at sitting still and being quiet. We want what we can see that is right in front of us, and sometimes it is hard to wait. Sometimes it's not entertaining. And sometimes waiting means that we have to endure hardships from others while we wait for God to move. Be patient, for God's timing is not our own. 
Or as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, as a little kid, you like what you know, right? Very plain food. For most kids, when given the choice between a Happy Meal and a steak from the finest steakhouse in Boston, they are going to pick the Happy Meal because it is what they know and, of course, the great toy inside. And when we are born, we are born into sin. With a sinful nature, sin is what we know. A fear that keeps us from God, a fear that questions God's good words to us. And you may remember Satan's line to Adam and Eve is, has God really said? The nature of the temptation was to question God's goodness, the goodness of God's word. And our sin nature makes us question God's goodness. Oftentimes, we are happy with our Happy Meal. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But a little later, writes, But God, rich in his mercy, made us alive together in Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ, we get a taste of eternal life on our palates. We taste the goodness of God. In the John 8 passage that was read, Jesus introduces another taste to us. As we said, to fear God is to taste his goodness, but to fear the world is to taste death. In the passage, the Pharisees are making false accusations against Jesus, but we see Jesus not fearing them. We see his fear of the Lord in his response. He says, I honor my Father, insinuating that he does not follow them. He says to them, anyone who keeps my word, he will never see death. And then a little later says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. The words of Jesus are life. As he says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And living outside of the words of Jesus is to taste death. And Peter picks up on this in his epistle in 1 Peter 2. He says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, that you may be sanctified. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you want to taste the goodness of God, then to follow him. Keep his commandments, trust in him. And to live outside the fear of God is to flirt, to taste death. So how can we tell what we fear more? By what we do. As Kierkegaard said, God's word is fundamentally practical. And as Jesus just said, his words are to be lived out. And there's a series of imperatives that take place in our psalm that are all about doing, about what we do, the decisions that we make. But of course, this doing must have its roots in faith, for without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, 6. And so we see the first two imperatives beginning in verse 8, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then in verse 9, he says, Fear the Lord, you his saints. And then children and teens of Park Street Church. 
Did you know that God addresses you in this psalm? In verse 11, he says, Come, O children, listen to me. Children, listen to me. If I can teach you one thing, listen to this. Fear the Lord. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Then there's this interesting question. He says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And verse 12 may seem kind of like an odd question or weirdly phrased, but essentially what David is asking is, what do you really want? Children, what do you really want? Teens, what do you really want out of life? Do you want to love life and experience good? Then don't settle for cheap imitation. David continues with his imperatives. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. I think there's a fair digital application to this as well in our world. We could say keep your emails, your text messages, your social media posts from evil and from deceit. Turn from evil and do good. It's a decision that we make to seek peace and pursue it, not division. To fear the Lord is to place our value, our identity in Him in such a way that we are not living to please man, but to please God. Galatians 1. And when we fear the Lord, we lack nothing because we have everything that we need in Him. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Do you believe that? That you have no lack in Christ. You have everything you need when you fear the Lord. In Him, our identity, who we are, is secured. We are called child of God, brother, sister, saint, forgiven, beloved. So much of what we do and the decisions we make, I believe myself included, is because we are afraid of failure in this life. How might your life, the life of our families, look and be prioritized differently if our fear of the Lord was greater than our fear of measuring up to the world? Now, fearing the Lord doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect in our life or that, that if we fear the Lord, that every outcome that we want will happen. And fearing the Lord doesn't deliver us from our circumstances, but brings redemption a taste of the sweetness of eternal life in the midst of hardship, as we see in verse 1 of our psalm, I will bless the Lord at all times. In the good and in the bad, I will fear him, for he is good. Fearing the Lord leads to our deliverance from the evil. And we see in verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And we don't have to be afraid of this life because this world is not our judge. Although we can live as if it is, God is our ultimate judge. And in Christ, we are not condemned. As Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
This world can be a harsh place. The world looks at us, oftentimes knows our name, yet calls us by our sins and our failures. Yet Christ knows our darkest sins, yet calls us by our names to be in loving relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, remember that the Lord is good. The Lord is like a well-aged wine, and he wants us to experience his goodness. And if we want to taste the goodness of God, then we must pursue it. We must pursue Jesus above all. That is to fear the Lord above all. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And then in Matthew 6, he says, Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. We are to seek after God, not because God is hiding from us, as Jesus says later, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. But because when we seek after the Lord, we learn how to find him. We learn to know where to look. And we can find him in the middle of a chemo treatment. And we can find him before a major surgery. And we can find him when we are rejected by our friends. We can find God's goodness when a loved one passes away. We can find his goodness in our suffering. And we can find his goodness in our uncertainty. We can experience God's goodness and find, his, and find him in every area of our life, in every corner of our life. As verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. There is no place in this world that we cannot find the goodness of God if we continue to seek after the Lord and to pursue him. I've never forgotten the moments in my life when I have experienced the goodness of God. And there is nothing like it in this world. I found it in fourth grade on my parents' couch after a Christmas Eve service, overcome by his love for me. I found it in middle school when I was sharing Jesus with my best friend. I found it in the halls of my high school when I was struggling with my friendships and my identity. I found it in college in the hills of Guatemala on a missions trip. I have found it in times of prayer. I found it when my wife and I were experiencing infertility. I found it in the worship services of Park Street Church. And I found it in the people of Park Street Church when we brought our daughter home. These are only a few of the times throughout my life where I have tasted and I have seen God's goodness, young and old, and the good and the bad. As I said, there's not a corner in this earth where God's presence and his goodness doesn't reach. As John 1 says, his light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. Park Street Church, do you, have you tasted and seen the goodness of God? There is nothing like it on this earth. It brings absolute peace to the chaos in our lives. It can lift the weight of the greatest burden. But it's easy for us to have spiritual amnesia, to get caught up in what is right in front of us, what we can grab, what we can feel. And it's easy to start prioritizing worldly success, measuring up to worldly standards over revering the Lord in all of life. But praise be to God that he redeems the life of his servants. And when we fall down, he doesn't condemn us. We don't run out of chances, but he welcomes us back. Fear the Lord, you his saints. 
for those who fear him have no lack. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. That you are not a God who is distant from us, but invites us to experience you, to know the sweetness of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, forgive us when we forget your goodness and we chase after we prioritize worldly pursuits, that we fear the Lord, we fear not measuring us. Lord, may our identity, our security, our comfort, and our hope rest in you and you alone. And the fear of the Lord, our good judge, who died on the cross for us. God, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have always in Christ Jesus. May we never take it for granted. God, may our fear of you drown out our fear of this world. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.